Well, the best case is Europe gets to gas storage and they're, you know, they're running ahead of schedule. They're like, I think around 85% as we're speaking today. And it's a mild winter. You know, that would be the best outcome. Worst outcome is social breakdown, you know, that it just becomes governments can't withstand the pressure. A recession turns into something worse than a recession. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome back to Winter is Coming on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Daniel Jurgen, Vice Chairman of S&P Global and author of the best-selling book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, as well as the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Prize. We'll be discussing what Dan has called the second front in the battle for Ukraine, an energy war in Europe. Hello, Dan. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Thank you, David. I'm very glad to be back with you guys. Well, thank you. So glad you could be here because I want to talk to you about the energy crisis in Europe in particular. Now, there was an energy crisis in Europe last winter, and the energy shortfall for this upcoming winter in Europe is looking to be much worse. Last year, there were a number of contributors to the energy crunch. This year, the focus is very much on the fall in natural gas imports from Russia. Now, you've called this the second front in the battle for Ukraine, an energy war in Europe. Can you explain why you think we're in an energy war in Europe? And how does this change how we all should be thinking about the energy markets this upcoming winter? Well, first, David, let me say that I'm glad that you noted that, in fact, this energy crisis did not start on February 24th when Russia invaded Ukraine, which many people do. And it really started, you know, roughly a year ago in September of 2021, when the markets really began to tighten because of what I called preemptive underinvestment in conventional energy sources. But then it was an economic development rather than geopolitical. Although Russia had begun pulling back on supplies, people noticed that normally Russia prices go up would put more gas in, but strangely enough, Russia didn't do that, and that contributed to higher prices. So, you know, maybe this was a a warm up for what was going to come with February twenty fourth to put the Europeans in a more difficult position, which was one of Putin's miscalculations. He thought that the Europe's heavy dependence on Russian energy would mean that they would protest but kind of wave through Ukraine, just as uh, Crimea annexation had been accepted. But this year now, uh, Putin is doing something that Russia and before that, the Soviet Union said they would never do. They would never use energy as a weapon. They were a reliable supplier. Putin is using it as a weapon now. And he laid out his strategy in June, basically at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, surprisingly explicitly. He said, you know, high prices will cause economic hardship, which will cause social tension and problems, which will bring populist parties to power and change, as he put it, the elites in Europe, left unsaid, undermine the coalition that's supporting Ukraine. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. And it looks like they have his one victory under his cap, which is uh, Italy, where Mario Draghi, who went to Kiev in a train to commit Italy's support to Ukraine, is being pushed out of power by one of the far-right parties which withdrew from the coalition. 
So you have this situation now where Europe is reeling from prices that people never imagined that they would see. No, and it's really staggering as you're starting to see the the prices businesses, small businesses are facing in Europe as people get these bills for you know thousands and thousands of pounds in the UK for one month of, of electricity. And I imagine that's going to be with us for some time and probably get worse. So, you know, from thinking about the energy markets, how is this different from a normal thinking about the fundamentals when thinking about it as Russia has unleashed energy as a weapon or changed its strategy in that way? You know, in a way, it reminds of some energy crises of the past, including the one, the kind of archetype that people talk about, even if they weren't born when it happened in the 1970s, when you had the collision between a global energy crisis and a global geopolitical crisis. And that's what makes this, this isn't just about markets anymore. It's about the whole system under stress because Putin is using gas as a weapon and as you say, it puts pressure on big companies and it puts in enormous pressure on smaller companies. You see, not just in England, but you see people, families closing down their bakeries, their shops because they can't afford it. You see plants shutting down, fertilizer plants, other plants shutting down because energy is too expensive. So this is, you know, it may not be so well perceived in the United States or other parts of the world, but Europe is in a very difficult situation, and it's highly likely by the fourth quarter that Europe will be in a recession. Yeah. And I wanted to, I'm glad you brought this back to the 1970s, because all of this ties into a much longer history. I know President Putin has long wanted to restore the power and status that Russia lost with the fall of the Soviet Union. And the collapse of the Soviet Union was in many ways connected with the collapse in oil prices in the 1980s. And so I'm curious, how does what is happening in Russia connect to that longer history? And do you think we'll look back in five, 10 years, uh, you know, some point down the road, will we look back and see this as a turning point that changes the energy markets for decades to come? Well, I think it, I think it will change it. And again, like the 70s, the world after the crisis of the 70s was different than the world before. The world after this crisis, we can already see it's going to be different. If we go back 30 years to the collapse of the Soviet Union, for the first time, the the barriers that had gone up in the Bolshevik Revolution came down and you had an integrated global market. I mean, people didn't know that until, you know, February, the U.S. was importing half a million barrels a day of Russian oil for its East Coast refineries to help them run more efficiently and produce more product. So everything was basically, there was always politics, but it was about efficiency. And you had global markets, you had obviously energy, oil and gas and coal flowing from Russia, but you had investment in technology flowing into Russia. And you had the development, of course, of a global gas market. And you had, you know, you're going to have the big four of LNG exporters, Qatar, Australia, the United States, and Russia. Well, the barriers have gone up again, because Europe has basically said, we're through. We're not going to import Russian energy anymore. And I think unless there's a major change in Russia, there's no going back from that. But that leaves that they really haven't prepared themselves for that. And so it can be very difficult for them. And you just changes in flows. India never imported Russian oil. Now I think it's either the largest or second largest import of Russian oil because they get it at a discount. And so you really have a, a restructuring of the global markets that's beginning and this notion that there's a single market and investment flows around the world 
it's going to be it's going to be a fragmented market, just as we're heading more generally into this kind of new era of fragmented and divisive globalization. Right. And you know, your latest of your many best-selling books on the commodity and energy markets over the years is the new map: Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. I'm curious how much of you know what we're seeing now were things that you were thinking about in writing the book, and what might require a new chapter. Well, certainly new chapter, you know, obviously the world changes, but the last sentence at the bottom of page 78 said Ukraine was the issue that was going to blow up between Russia and the West. And it happened, I didn't necessarily envision that it would happen this way, but you could just see that this was a, a tinderbox. And it was a focus because it really reflected the fact that Putin did not accept the outcome of the end of the Cold War. He did not accept the outcome that uh, Ukraine was a separate country and gas was so intertwined with it. Why Russia was building Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2, one of the primary reasons was so not to have to send gas through Ukraine, through which most of their gas you know, historically had gone to, to Europe. And I wrote in the book a lot about how this relationship between Putin and Xi has developed between Russia and China. And I had a scene describing in the book, describing being at that St. Petersburg conference in 2019 and watching when Putin's guest was Xi and Putin began the conversation by apologizing. He said, you know, President Xi, I kept you up till four o'clock your time talking. And Xi said, we never have enough time to talk. And I thought, what do they talk about? One of the main things they talk about is they don't like the international, global, economic and political order that in their view, the U.S. dominates. They don't see it as a multilateral system. And, you know, and that's what we see now is Russia is basically headed to become an economic dependency of China. The other thing that I wrote about was the, which, which is unfolding right now, explaining why we're seeing this movement from what I call the WTO consensus, in which China and the United States were all in this together, was, you know, all benefiting from globalization and China would be a responsible stakeholder and all those terms that were used to now this great power competition and explaining how this came about and why and where I think that the next crisis could be. I'm fascinated to get your take on what policymakers in the West may be thinking, because so far the response to the shortfall in Russian gas has largely been left to market forces, with market prices directing these you know, massive volumes of LNG from the US to Europe rather than a government-directed Berlin Airlift-type operation. When you speak with many policymakers, do you think they realize the seriousness of this situation? Well, I think certainly, let me divide it in two parts, the Europeans and the U.S. Europeans, absolutely, because they're living with it, and those consumers are also voters and very concerned about social disorder that can ensue. And they're struggling to figure out well, how do you manage this? Now, the focus up till now has been get as much gas to the storage for the winter as you can. That's contributed to the higher prices. But now the question is, they're saying, how do we cap the prices? Do we cap them? Do we give, do we subsidize? Do we send money to consumers? How do we handle that? And that's what they're struggling with now. So you're going to hear a lot about price caps of one kind or another. The U.S. proposal for a price cap on Russian oil, the European proposals for price caps on natural gas, or windfall profits. So you're going to see a lot of intervention in markets. And, you know, it's driven by the reality that this is, uh, you know, way outside 
you know, any of their scenarios that they were working with. And a lot of the interventions may cause further distortions in the market. I mean, because it's really the unknown. I mean, how do you, you know, price caps can, among other things, you don't, you screws up the price signals for consumers and for investors. The U.S., it's a kind of big turnaround is that you had a Biden administration that came in only focused on climate, then turning around and saying to domestic oil producers, could you increase production, please, at least for a short time, at least while we need it. Right. And sort of rediscovering, um, you know, the fact that the world run, it runs 82 percent of world energy is hydrocarbons. And uh, of course, the other responses you've had in the U.S. is so-called Inflation Reduction Act which doesn't seem to have much to do with inflation, except maybe it'll drive up the cost of minerals, but a lot to do with it. It should really be called the uh, 2022 Industrial Policy Act, which, uh, which is pretty massive intervention in the energy markets in an effort to change them. And uh, you know, whatever the estimates of the money that's destined to be spent, you know it's going to be a lot, end up being a lot more than that because it always is. Right. And do you think this is an energy war that Europe and the U.S. can win? And at what price? Well, I think it's a dicey situation because, you know, Putin, from his point of view, has to win his war. And breaking the coalition has to be a central objective of it, create confusion and disarray. So he's going to throw everything into it. I think at the end of the day, the Europeans, I think, are going to hang together because they look at the Ukraine war as a war in Europe. And there's lots of apprehension about, well, if Putin succeeds here, what's next? So they can't be allowed to win. So that's why, you know, it's very hard for people to see what the way out is here. And of course, it's made more complicated that one side has nuclear weapons. Of course, the other side, NATO has nuclear weapons too, which is, you know, has caused terror. And then you have this nuclear power plant, which the Russians are treating like war booty and uh, with grave, grave danger and higher responsibility. I mean, I think if something bad happens with that, I think the West really needs to say that basically Putin used nuclear weapons, but in a different form. But I think that, um, you know, I think it's getting through the next few months will be the really critical element. And there is a new player in the global energy market now, and it's called the U.S. Federal Reserve and the other central banks. And you see it already permeating prices, uh, his uh, expectations of stagnation or recession bringing down prices. And the prices are very volatile and things could change tomorrow. But, you know, prices would come down further if there's an Iran nuclear deal and more Iranian oil. Prices would go up if China actually got out of COVID and went back to its old levels of oil consumption. But I think that uh, Federal Reserve that is relentlessly raising interest rates is going to be uh, a form of price management. A slower economy to take down demand rather than higher prices. Right. And it sounds like Putin won't back down. Europe needs to hang together. Do you think Europe needs to be on some sort of energy war footing? Or like, what does that even look like rather than just let prices go up? And Well, I think, it, you know, it would be, the Germans have certainly been talking about, and not only the Germans, but the imminence of some kind of rationing. Hmm. And I think Germany's been preparing for that. You know, decide who gets gas. Tough to do. 
who are the priorities because you don't want to shortchange industry and have unemployment. But I think, I think that would qualify as, um, as a war footing. I think intervention to market price caps, that's like a war footing. And some have compared, you know, the kind of intervention we're now seeing by the U.S. government, comparing it to sort of the war footing intervention of almost World War II that, you know, to have that degree of uh, intervention. But, you know, this is now this is economic life and death for Europe right now. And it's political and survival for its political leaders. Hmm. I mean, the people, the other people holding office don't want to be the next Mario Draghi. Right. And so, you know, putting all that together, what's your outlook for energy in Europe and more broadly this winter? And what do you think are the best and worst case scenarios within reason that are in play? Well, the best case is Europe gets to um, gas storage and they're, you know, they're running ahead of schedule. They're like, I think around 85% as we're speaking today. And it's a mild winter. That, you know, that would be the best, uh, the best outcome. Worst outcome is social breakdown. You know, that it just becomes governments can't withstand the pressure. A recession turns into something worse than a recession. I think that's there. I mean, you know, where we are now, you know, Putin thought the war would be over in three days. Uh, his officers uh, on the way to invading, on the way they thought to Kiev, carried dress uniforms for the ceremonial parade. Didn't turn out that way. So, you know, World War One was supposed to be a short war, turned into trench warfare. So we don't know. And there's the additional danger is that Russia is a nuclear power and Putin has four or five times in veiled and not so veiled ways talked about using nuclear weapons. He seems to have backed away from that now because, of course, he doesn't know what the repercussions would be. But that's certainly, um, you know, there you can get to even worse scenarios, but I prefer not to go there. Yeah. Well, it's I, I prefer to go with war. Enough. I prefer to go with gas storage filled and warm winter. And, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, and, it's, it's terrible to be in the situation where... You know, you need to, to yeah. pray for warmth. And yeah, and, and uh, you know, and from an energy point of view, you, you know, a, um, you know, relieving the pressure on Europe, not a recession, but an economic slowdown that takes the, and the people behavioral responses. I mean, we do see price responses. Gasoline demand in the U.S. now is, you know, maybe six to 8% less than it was this time last year. So we shouldn't forget Every price is a little piece of information that tells people what to do. You know, higher gasoline prices, uh, you know, hit teachers, nurses, people driving to work. But now gasoline prices are down, and partly it's because people found ways to reduce consumption. So I think prices itself is an important actor here. And kind of, uh, you know, they always say the solution to high, what is the solution to high prices is uh, high prices because they bring low prices. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's a I think there's a larger question just to add to it though I think there is this larger question about investment two questions one is that you know preemptive underinvestment's a real problem because energy oil and gas demand is going to continue to grow and you know you can't tell emerging markets they can't have energy and one of the things I write about in the, in the new map is the, the emergence of this new north south divide where developing countries say hey you can't tell us that we can't use natural gas instead of having people burn wood in indoor cooking. You won't finance that. Oh, but by the way, you do want to finance more natural gas terminals. 
So I think uh, that's there. The other thing that I've been working on, and I, I was really the result, I, I talk about it in the new map and have been, continued to work on it, is this move from that term we hear a lot about when prices are up, big oil, to a world of big shovels, mining. And we uh, at S&P Global have just concluded this big study on, on copper. And it's, it's very interesting, David. We said, okay, take the Biden 2050 goals, take the EU 2050 goals. Okay, and then say, what does that mean technology by technology and sub-technology by sub-technology? And how much copper do you need? And we picked on copper because copper is the metal of electrification. And we saw that you get this energy transition demand on top of existing demand. And guess what? There's not enough supply. Basically, supply would have to double to meet the demand that's embodied in these goals by 2035. And look at Chile's as a new president. And they're looking, you know, their aim is to tax copper production more and uh, restrict mining, put limitations on it, make permits harder. So, you know, why does Chile matter? Because Chile is the source of 25% of the world's copper. Chile and Peru together are 38% of the world's copper. But 42% is smelted in China. Yeah, it's becoming energy security is becoming metal security. <laughs> Absolutely. And the notion, okay, so, you know, Biden says, well, we've got to fix that. Well, the amount of copper produced in the United States over the last couple of decades has declined by half. Try and get a permit to, well, try and get a permit to do, build anything in the United States, but try to get a permit to do a new mine. And, um, you know, the IEA says, the International Energy Agency says it's 16 years on average from discovering a resource to first production. But he left, they left out the other, the next 15 years of litigation uh, <laughs> uh, as it works its way through the courts in the United States. Yeah, we, we, I'm so glad you brought up that report, The Future of Copper. Such a, such a great report. And I was uh, fortunate enough, we had Robert Friedland on the podcast a, a month or two back, you know, from Ivanhoe sure. Mines talking about just that issue of, you know, this, what I call plan A for the energy transition, which is we're going to electrify everything and we're going to power it by, you know, low carbon alternatives, renewable solar wind, that if you sit down and work through the arithmetic like you've done, you start to realize, wow, we don't have nearly enough of the metals and minerals and copper and everything that we need. And I think Europe kind of shows, you know, that premature transition to some extent. Uh, we saw that last winter. So now that we have this energy war in Europe, creating a severe shortage of our current energy supply and a lack of investment and shortfall in metals, it's going to likely create a, a shortage in what we need to transition to a low carbon energy supply. How are you thinking about all this and, and what it means for the future in terms of an energy transition? Well, I think that the Inflation Reduction Act, actually, you may see what people are not anticipating, if we can generalize from copper, is that you're going to see a lot of inflation in the cost of the materials that are required for the, for the energy transition, that it may end up getting more expensive, because obviously now people have looked at and said, wow, I mean, it's incredibly dramatic, cost of solar down 90%, wind costs going way down. And so people are now just ex extrapolating, oh, those costs, it's so cheap, will continue. Right. But, you know, if everybody rushes to the same side of the boat at the same time, you know, it happens. It's not smooth sailing. And I think that uh, this question of where you're going to get the materials from is just, 
you know, half the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You go down the list and just permitting issues around the world. You talk South Africa, they'll talk about permitting issues, everybody. So it's, it gets harder to do this. And then you just need so much more. You know, in the copper study, we said, okay, in new supply, greater efficiency in mining and recycling, those are all the elements. But, you know, recycling, I mean, a lot of steel, you know, iron, steel can be recycled. But these other things, you have to gather all the stuff, you know, on scale. So, and I think people, you know, it was really interesting looking at copper, because actually copper is not on the critical minerals list of the U.S. government, which is really odd, because I, I don't think they looked at it as you can't, as, as you said, this is about electrification, and copper is a metal of electrification, you need it. So I think that um, that this assumption that just you can do all of this really quickly, that everybody can have an electric car and offshore wind and all these other things. I know an electric car takes at least two and a half times more copper uh, than a conventional car. Now, maybe with innovation, they can reduce it, but that's two and a half. So I thought when California uh, declared the other day that all cars sold in the state have to be electric by 2035, I'd said, okay, let's multiply every one of those, whatever the amount of copper, let's multiply it by 2.5. You know, have, did they figure that in the legislation? Probably not. But copper is a good good example because you just see you see where the supplies come from and then of course there's a famous phrase called the obsolescing bargain you let's say david greeley inc makes an investment in a developing country and you have a festive dinner and sign the papers and everybody agrees on it and then it goes on and the price goes up and down in the market new government comes in that has no vested interest in the deal and says, well, they made too good of a deal to get you to invest your money here. Let's change it because you've already invested. And so the bargain you have becomes obsolescent and suddenly the costs and everything go up. So I think as sure as the sun rises, that's what's going to happen with as these minerals and resources become more important for the energy transition. And I think most people just are not thinking about it in the context of how economic history unfolds. Yeah. And I wanted to, just before you go, ask you about how policymakers may be thinking about it because there, I find there's this interesting split where you've got people like yourself, people like Robert Friedland, people who are in the commodities energy world who are used to thinking about how you do a project and thinking in terms of tons of metal and barrels of oil and you know that sort of arithmetic. And then on like a little bit more of the climate side, um, there seems to be a consensus that we can pull off the energy transition and it'll cost somewhere around 2% of GDP over the next you know, 20, 30 years. And I loved your point about like, yes, solar wind prices have come down, but if you start running out of the cobalt and the copper and all the other materials you need, those prices are going to shoot right back up. And it seems like some of the, the 2% mindset probably is extrapolating the low prices we see at current scale, but not taking into account the sheer level of investment, yeah. the risk of the yeah. investment. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. It would be interesting to say, okay, take your two percenter and do another scenario in which the prices of those inputs go up to 4% a year or something like that over a period of time. And then tell us if, what's your 2%, does it become 5%? What, what it, you know, how, how does this work? I mean, it's an it's immense achievement that silver costs have come down so much. And thank you, China, because China produces 
80% of the solar panels and they brought those costs down. And you're also going to run into the globalization issues. You know, one reason costs have come down is because you had globalization, you had the efficiency, let's, you know, the get the cheapest solar panel from China, not really worry about production elsewhere. Well, now, sorry, don't, we don't want to be so dependent upon China. China has its own calculations as well. And, you know, there's a price for security and we don't know what that price is going to be, but it's, you know, it may be higher than people think. So I think one needs a little more modesty about the assuredness with one can speak about how an energy transition will unfold. And one of the things I, I did in the new map, I said, okay, energy transition. And I look back historically at all the energy transitions. What's being talked about now is not like any energy transition we'd have had because oil overtook coal as the world's number one resource in the 1960s. Today, the world uses three times as much coal. Well, now you're talking about, I think you before talking to A and B, you're saying, okay, here's A, we're going to chuck A and just have B. That's never been done and do that in 28 years. And what today is about an $88 trillion world economy that could be a $150 trillion world economy by 2050. Uh, that's today 82% dependent on hydrocarbons. I think you need to be at least a little modest about uh, about getting that done. The real world tends to be a little more complicated than uh, scenarios or PowerPoints. Thanks again to Daniel Jurgen, vice chairman of S&P Global and author of the best-selling book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, as well as the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Prize. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and don't forget to read The Future of Copper, Will the Looming Supply Gap Short-Circuit the Energy Transition, available free from S&P Global. Please join us next week when our guest will be Doomberg. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.